Ah, my friends, welcome back to another episode of the New Wave Podcast. Daniel DePaz is checking in with you here. And you know what's awesome? It's Friday. It's the Friday wrap-up. And you know on Friday, I like to give you just what's happening in the news that's coming across my desk. Now, of course, this isn't everything. This is just the recap of things I'm finding interesting as I click through Reddit and CNN or CBS or Reuters or all these other things. And of course, I like to take these headlines and do some analysis on them. I'm not really talking about them as fact, more as talking to them about opinion. And these are things you should do research on as well. But I think they're interesting things to bring up. And of course, while you're here, make sure you're getting all the updates on all the other things we're doing on the New Wave Entrepreneur, including going to newwaveentrepreneur.com and making sure that you're getting all the updates, sign up for the email list. Of course, making sure that you're signed up and you're subscribed to whatever platform you're listening to this on, whether it's Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, all that. Leave a comment, leave a review. I really appreciate everyone who I see come across the uh, the website, whether you leave a comment or I see a review or you leave a, a DM for me in my inbox. And any of those things uh, really makes me smile, brings a smile to my day. And I really enjoy doing the show for you. So I hope that you're enjoying it. And let's dive right into today's episode. Okay. So uh, the first uh, article that I have around my desk is, the title is, The Ukraine Readies NFT Sales as Crypto Donations Reach 60 Million. Now that is uh, pretty interesting. If you've been following, obviously, the war that's going on in uh, the Ukraine with Russia, we're seeing now that cryptocurrency is being used as a tool to get money to an area where there is little financial access. And we've also seen how uh, how in Canada, crypto has been used to also bring money to people who needed it. And there were some, uh, within that, with the trucker situation, if you're paying attention to that, some instances where crypto was being blocked by the Canadian government. And then there was all this uh, speculation and worry around what that means for crypto in general. And I just think that's a nice, uh, interesting backdrop to consider when we're seeing the fact that um, the Ukrainian government will soon basically have collected over $60 million in crypto sales from assets that they've either sold or from money that they've collected in the form of different coins uh, over the past month or so. And right now, the Ukrainian government is uh, saying that it will soon end its museum NFT sale, which I'll tell you more about in a second. And it's also preparing to give away uh, money to 66,000 refugees. They're going to give away some crypto uh, money. So this is coming off of Bloomberg. Ukraine is launching a webpage for selling the estimated 300 NFTs, non-fungible tokens, it has received in donation to help the nation's war effort. The NFTs include a donated crypto punk that is expected to fetch about 200 grand, according to Alex Bornyov, a deputy minister of digital transformation of Ukraine. Only between 5 and 10% of the donated NFTs are valuable, he said in an interview. The webpage, which could be stated, which could be started within the week, will also offer 10 NFT collections created by independent companies who have pledged all proceeds go to Ukraine. Quote, we just want to show how many people are doing this and how they are inspired by those events and how they help, they want to help uh, Ukraine, Bornyov said. The sales will happen via OpenSea, the largest NFT marketplace. Crypto donations have been utilized by the Ukrainian government as it tries to raise funds for everything from body armor to medical supplies. The nation sold about $770,000 of what it refers to as museum NFTs, which debuted last week and shows scenes from the war, Bornyov said. The museum NFT sale could conclude as early as this week. Uh, when the digital art sales hit 1 million. I think it's even more impactful, Bornikov says, than just making crypto donations, or I'm sorry, Bornikov says, the more you can uh, store, a, or then you can store a piece and it's going to be with you until you decide to sell it. It's still out there. It still reminds people about what happened. So uh, the last thing I'll say, Ukraine had 32 Bitcoins valued at around 1.5 million donated yesterday. Bornikov said it has raised more than 60 million in digital coin donations today. So this is interesting. Okay, here's what I think. First of all, I think it's awesome that we're using uh, crypto as a tool to to create 
revenue and capital where there was none. I think it's awesome that we can use this to send money across the board. I think it's awesome that average people can donate to the war effort in a way that is meaningful to them. I think all it's really cool. Uh, I also do wonder, you know, when I see some of these numbers here, for instance, scrolling down here, I said, so they've raised almost $60 million and they've spent, so they spent most of that on body armor and medical supplies and all that stuff. And I was looking at other numbers and whenever I look at, at budget numbers that are purported in a war, it's always like they'll spend something like $40 million on body armor and quote supplies. And you just think, how can the price of these things not be really completely jacked up with, ev with everything from body armor and missiles and bullets and guns to medical supplies? Because maybe, the, maybe it's just my human brain that has a hard time really imagining scale and understanding what things cost at scale. But it just seems to me like we've talked about this on the show before that sometimes when it comes to economics and, and global politics and finance, they're just pulling numbers out of their ass. Like, I don't think it should cost $60 million for the supplies that they need. I don't know exactly what they need, but it seems like, especially in times of war, especially in times of crisis, or just in times of economic hardship, when, for instance, you know, another company is accept or another country's, one country is accepting money from another to buy supplies, it seems like the prices of things are inordinately high to create the results they're looking for. I just, I, the numbers don't make sense to me, but I, have, I guess I have to see things on paper. But I look at the U.S. numbers too, and I say, why? Why is it that the Build Back Better thing is going to cost six trillion dollars? Does it really create six trillion dollars of human energy worth of human energy? You know, to to uh, create whatever changes we need to make in the U.S. I don't know. So the numbers are what I'm unsure of, but I, I do like the idea around uh, using crypto for donations to war. One of the things I'm also kind of worried about, or not worried about, but just a little bit annoyed about is just how selective uh, the news and different organizations are in in championing uh, individual wars versus you know one versus the other. Like for instance, um, we hear wars all the time that are happening when they happen in Europe, uh, but oftentimes when they're happening in brown countries, you don't hear them, and even times in Europe you don't hear them, um, especially in countries like Eastern Europe where they're not necessarily uh, where they're not uh, very. I guess, fond of Eastern Europeans with Western political media. I, I think maybe there's this unwritten idea that Europeans, uh, like Western Europeans are nice and they're like us. And then uh, Eastern Europeans are dirtier and they're more like foreigners. Like if you think of like how the Western media portray, uh, portrays Russians, probably Ukrainians a lot of times, uh, maybe not recently, but a lot of times, or different types of Slavs, we don't typically portray them well in our media. Same thing with Middle Easterns, you know, Middle Eastern people, um, Arab people, people from the Islam, from the Islamic world, uh, anything in the, in the middle of the world like that. Africans, of course, we don't treat very well. But it's just interesting how when there's a war and the political conditions are right, it's the right type of country to cover and it's the right timing. Everyone wants to talk about it. And it's, oh, let's let's reform the world by dem by donating to this country through crypto. But it's like there are all these other efforts that could also use that same type of energy. So they always say, keep that same energy. So it's like, you know, I'm, I'm very happy that crypto is being used in this way, but it's kind of like interesting that we are seeing how it, it they, they pick and choose when and where they want to revolutionize the way that, I mean, like, wouldn't it be nice if, you know, if Somalia could get $60 million in crypto NFTs? I mean, we just never hear about that. So just something I think about it. I wonder why Ukraine? 
Why Ukraine? Why is this war so important to us? And other ones we kind of just seem to forget about. A lot of times, the the wars that are happening are directly or indirectly the result of just American imperialism and us either moving or removing different dictators in and out over a period of decades, us destabilizing things or keeping an iron grip on certain countries' currencies. And um, you know, we don't talk about that too much and we certainly aren't helping aid a lot of the countries that we're involved with uh, some of the some of these same issues. But either way, it is cool to see the the natural benefit of this type of technology to a country who is in need. So good job, Ukraine. Okay, uh, next one here is also on the NFT tip. And I think this is so cool because I wanted to highlight something I saw coming out of CNBC. And the headline here is, Britain announces plans to mint its own NFT as it looks to, quote, lead the way in crypto. And Basically, this is, I was actually kind of proud of the Brits when I read this. I uh, This is the first I'm hearing of this. UK Finance Minister Rishi Sunak has asked the Royal Mint to create an issue, the NFT, uh, which is going to be a national, uh, UK, like national NFT by the summer, a government uh, minister said Monday. City Minister John Glenn announced a number of steps the UK will take to bring digital assets under more regulatory scrutiny. And he said that the government wants Britain to lead the way in crypto. So let's talk a little bit more about this. The UK government on Monday announced to mint its own non-fungible token as part of a push towards becoming, quote, a world leader in the cryptocurrency space. Finance Minister Rishi Sunak has asked the Royal Mint, the government-owned company responsible for minting coins for the company, for the UK, to create and issue the NFT by the summer. Uh, City Minister John Glenn said at a fintech event in London, there will be, quote, more details available very soon. Digital assets, uh, or NFTs are digital assets that represent ownership of virtual item like an artwork or video game avatar using blockchain, which is, you know, underpun, un- underpins uh, cryptocurrency technology. And if you've been listening to this podcast and everything else, you've heard them get a lot of traction over the last few years, last year especially. Uh, the UK's NFT initiative is part of a broader effort by the government to, quote, lead the way in crypto, according to Glenn. The minister announced a number of steps in the UK uh, that they're going to take to bring the digital assets under more regulatory scrutiny, including plans to uh, one, uh, bring stable coins within the UK's existing regulations on electronic payments. Two, consult on a, quote, world-leading regime for regulating trade in other cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin. Three, ask the Law Commission to consider the legal status of blockchain-based communities known as Decentralized Autonomous Organizations, or DAOs. We've talked about that. Four, Examine the tax treatment of decentralized finance, DeFi, loans, and quote, staking, which gives crypto users the ability to earn an, uh, earn an interest on their savings. Also, they talked about establishing a crypto asset engagement group that's going to be chaired by ministers. They talked about exploring the application of blockchain technology to issuing uh, debt instruments. So this is really interesting because he said, Glenn said, uh, we shouldn't be thinking of regulation as a static, rigid thing. Instead, we should be thinking in terms of regulatory code, like computer code, which we refine and rewrite as we need to. So I pretty think that I pretty much think that's good. I think that the US has potentially had a slower and a little bit more stagnant approach. And of course, we'd like to see the UK actually roll this stuff out. Now, there are the words versus the actions. So we know that they're saying this about what their goals and intentions are now. We'll have to see how that plays out in real time. You know, every president that the US ever has always says one thing and usually does another. Um, but I, I do like some of these, um, some of these, these intentions that are mentioned by, uh, by the politicians in the UK. One of the things that I think is vague is regulating trade in other cryptocurrencies, which I'm not sure how that would work yet. Having more general access and regulatory power over the cryptocurrencies, I think, has to be used with care. Otherwise, it just becomes the same type of large government breathing on your neck, except they want your crypto instead of your dollars. 
And that's something that we we developed so that we could move away from. That's why we developed crypto so that we could have some sort of safe space from the government being able to basically be the custodian of all of our money. And if the UK is able to pull some of this off and they actually have a, an open-minded enough agenda, then it could be very positive for them. And hopefully they can be a model for the world. And you know, if that's, if that's something that we can take a note from, then I'd be happy to be on that train. So good job, Britain. Now, let's talk a bit about, um, let's talk a bit about food prices. I know this is like very much obviously in the news, but what I'm seeing here from USA Today is that food prices uh, and inflation is going to continue to go up. And uh, and I, I pulled this article up because I thought it had some very interesting little stats about which uh, food categories have gone up the most since uh, the beginning of the year. And this is from USA Today. So if you think that paying $10 for a pound of bacon or $6 for a pound of butter is bad, it's about to get more expensive. The USDA's Economic Research Service updated its March report predicting a 45 to 5% rise in food prices this year. And eating out is also going to see the highest increase in prices, uh, which is going to be around 7%. Let's see. I'm looking at this list here. Obviously, you know, we know about gas being inflected by inflation. Now, it says, it says that the, the number one category that has increased in terms of, in terms of year over year price increases, according to the USDA, the number one category is beef and veal, which has increased 16.2%. And earlier in one of my episodes, I talked about how leverage means sometimes paying someone else to, to do stuff for you. And I talked about how I was getting meal delivery services. And when I worked out and did the math, I realized that it was almost cheaper or, or basically cheaper for me to get someone to deliver my meals for me because not only was it saving me time, but with inflation the way it's going, I wasn't actually saving as much anymore just by cooking my own meals. And I think that when you are working for a, you know, a, a food company, you're going to get bulk prices. And so it seems like they have slightly better prices per, per chicken breast than I get most likely. And overall, it's not that much ex- more expensive to buy it from someone else after they've already cooked it than for me to get all the food and do it myself. But I, either way, beef and veal, which I never eat veal, beef and veal have increased. They've increased to, uh, between 2021 and 2022, 16.2%. In 2022 alone, they're expected to increase 3.4%. So that's in the past two years, they're going to have increased 20%, both beef and veal. And that pretty much fits with where I've seen in the store. When I go to buy a steak now, it's much more expensive. And other meats have also increased too, pork, poultry. You know what's really not increased or what's increased actually the lowest amount? Check this out. Everything else has increased. Beef, pork, poultry, eggs, fish, Dairy, fats and oils, sugars and sweets, cereal and bakery products. You know what's increased the least or what is looking to increase the least and has already increased uh, pretty much the least of everything else in, in all of these categories? Fresh fruits and vegetables. Now, maybe that's because they're more renewable and crop space is different than animal. But at the same time, doesn't that give you an idea of <laughs> where you could be eating and cleaning up to make your life a bit healthier? You know, fresh fruits and vegetables are the cheaper things right now. Go for those. You know, stay away from the beef, although I do eat I do eat beef. So it's not, I'm not saying don't eat beef, but I'm saying, obviously, if you want to clean yourself up, clean your diet up, you can look for more fruit and vegetables. And as a matter of fact, they'll just be the lowest of all the inflated things as uh, the world continues to inflate. But I thought it was interesting. And again, we talk about assets on the show. We talk about how we want our assets to outpace inflation. We talked about how the CPI, the consumer price index is tied to not only what's actually happening in the world, but also the perception of what's happening. The FUD index, fear, uncertainty, doubt is always churning and that's making us, uh, it's, it's changing the way that our, our prices are uh, being created, not just because of actual shortages, but because of perceived shortages. A lot of times what you'll find 
is that even when the pandemic was happening in the very beginning, there weren't actually supply chain shortages, but people were freaking out so badly that they created shortages at the store when there didn't need to be. So oftentimes, our anxiety about the problem creates more problems than the problem itself. And I think to a certain extent that has a large amount of relevance with COVID. It's not that COVID isn't a real thing. It's that the anxiety around COVID created so many additional problems that COVID itself didn't create that it created actually probably more than just straight up dealing with the virus. You know, one of those is the fear, uncertainty, and doubt that often leads to unnecessary price spikes and the reason why you can't get toilet paper when the virus isn't even as deadly as the traditional flu. So uh, let's check into the next episode or the next uh, bullet point. Okay. This one is coming from, ooh, this is an interesting one. So scientists finally have clues to see what happens when we die. The scientists finally have clues about what we see when we die. Now, this is interesting. Uh, the team working uh, with, with a patient was able to capture 900 seconds before his death. Let me, let me read this article. I just pulled this one up. This was in my notes, and I actually skipped this one. I'm going to read this one for you. So this is from Men's Health, which, uh, which is syndicated by Yahoo. Scientists finally have clues about what we see when we die. So for the very first time, scientists have recorded the brainwaves of a dying person. The recordings indicate that there could be some truth to the statement, my life flashed before my eyes when someone has a near-death experience. The findings, which have been published in Frontiers in Aging Neuroscience, are not comprehensive because the patient had also suffered brain injuries. So, after a fall, an 87-year-old male went to the emergency room and rapidly deteriorated while hooked up to an, uh, to an EEG machine that captured his brainwaves as he passed from a heart attack. This is not the first time that we've seen brainwave activity in a dying person. Some patients who have been pulled off of life support have had simplified EEG recordings taken, though they've been limited to frontal cortex signals. This, however, is the first case of detailed recordings that may be able to shed light on what we experience when we die. Quote, for decades now, people have reported episodes of paradoxical lucidity and heightened consciousness in relation to death. This is intriguing as this seems to be occurring in the brain areas that are all shutting down in relation to death, says Dr. Sam Par uh, Parnia, Director of Critical Care and Resuscitation at NYU. Although in the past it's been assumed that these are simply uh, anecdotes, population surveys have indicated that this phenomenon occurs in around 10% of the population, that around 800 million people are living with this. The team working with the patient was able to capture about 900 seconds of brain activity and focus most of its analysis on the first 30 seconds before and after the patient's heart stopped beating. So immediately following the cardiac arrest, they noticed changes in the brain waves involved higher order cognitive functions, including information processing, concentrating, memory retrieval, conscious perception, and the details, different stages of dreaming, possibly indicating the brain was actively engaging in memory recall. Quote, what's most intriguing is that, the, is that this seems to be occurring when the brain is shutting down at the end of life. Yeah, now this is really interesting. Uh, the study supports these. Uh, the study supports these descriptions and certainly raises the possibility that a marker of lucidity at the end of life may have been discovered. So this is interesting, and I think that it doesn't surprise me at all. It's kind of like when I read the article uh, recently in Newsweek, and it, it was it had a huge picture of a psilocybin mushroom on the cover, and it said something like the effect of like this just in mushrooms better than Prozac, something like we've you know. Finally, after years of research, we found that there are natural mushrooms that alter the brain's chemistry and can act as an antidepressant, just like Prozac. And I'm like, no, no, no. Prozac is like mushrooms. Mushrooms aren't like Prozac. <laughs> I mean, and, and actually Prozac isn't like mushrooms, but the idea is the mushroom came first. Uh, the mushroom is the natural antidepressant. It's natural psychedelic. And 
a lot of ancient cultures, I mean, even, even Christianity will tell you that, that you're going to see things before you die usually or that you're, you, the things you see are related to something that's real, not something you're imagining. And many ancient cultures will tell you this. And if you've ever done a psychedelic experience, you'll probably have seen something near death or you, there's a good chance you will have especially in things like DMT or ayahuasca or LSD or, or psilocybin. And so I always find it humorous when they have some sort of major breakthrough They're like, this just in, you might see things like life experiences or spiritual masters or different things before you die. And, and science proves it's possible. And it's like, we don't need science to prove everything for us because science should be a verification of our experiences for sure. And it should be a way of objectively looking at the world. but. We've had millions and millions and millions of people now at this point say, I've seen these specific things in my near-death experiences. Even to the point now where there's consensus a lot of times with people who've, who weren't in the same body about what's being seen. And that to me is just as valid, if not more valuable than many, many scientists staying inside of the, the lab to figure out the same thing. Obviously, you want to have uh, research and that's all well and good and it's quite valuable. But I also trust humanity. And if I have millions of people over not just recent history, but world history, life history, humanity tell us that they're seeing these things, then they're clearly happening to me. Now, what the cause of these things are is different. Now, of course, in the article, it doesn't go on to, to mention that. It just talks about how an 87-year-old man was activating regions of his brain that are associated with memory and recall and logic and decision-making. It's like, yeah, probably a lot of that stuff was happening at the time of uh, at the time of death, he probably was processing something for real. It's just, I'm always surprised that science is surprised that these things are happening when you don't need a complicated experiment to, uh, to experience many of the things that, uh, that they spend so many years testing. And so it's, but it's good to see that they are getting closer. Science is getting closer to, 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 to seeing this stuff objectively. And, you know, it says, we do not anticipate that the article finishes with saying, we do not anticipate death in healthy subjects and therefore could not obtain recordings in the near-death near death phase in anything other than from circumstances involving pathological conditions in acute care hospital settings. The, paper th the paper's authors note that the team was able to capture the 87-year-old patient's brainwaves as he died occurred entirely by happenstance after all. So they're saying, basically, we didn't set out to make this experiment, but we did find something interesting. Maybe we can find something else as a result of it. And um, I hope that they can keep doing the research in this direction because I'm quite interested to know what they have to find. All right, my friends. That wraps it up for today. That's the news. That's what we're working on. That's what we're, we're feeling in the community. You know, I like to cover a wide variety of science, politics, economics. We'll do some technology. We'll do some crypto and then let you go swirl around and look for the rest. Now, make sure you're doing your own research and make sure you're only using my little nuggets as the jumping off point in your daily research. I typically say that I don't keep the, I don't keep the local news on, but I will still dive in. I like to still see what humanity is doing, but I also, I also take the time to look at multiple different sources and get different opinions on the same questions. And that's really what you should do here. When I'm reading the news and when I'm thinking about the news and talking to you about this, don't take me as the authority. Take me as the as the spark and as the ignition point for you to go do your own investigation in the world and find some things that are interesting to you and send them to me. You can always get in contact with me, Daniel at newwaveentrepreneur.com. Of course, make sure you subscribe to this channel. You like it, you give it a comment and whatever platform you're listening to it on iTunes, Spotify, and of course, go to newwaveentrepreneur.com to get all the updates on everything that we're doing. Get on the email list and join so that if anything happens on one of these platforms, you can always be updated with the new shows because we're not going to stop because guess what? The water is warm. The tide is rising. Let's jump on in and get ready to surf this new wave. Daniel, out. Happy Friday.